This is the Thrive Podcast with Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And now, Pastor Fred Jeff Smith. Hello, welcome to the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you're either viewing this on YouTube or listening to it on iTunes. Uh, We do invite you to let us know how we are doing. Uh, You can write me at fredjeffsmith at cox.net. Tell us the good, the bad, the ugly uh, with the podcast. Uh, This is a conversation designed uh, for me to learn personally, but hopefully for our audience to learn as well. And if there are things that we could do to make it better, we certainly want to hear from you. I am very delighted today to welcome a member of the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church and a champion of social justice for juveniles in particular, uh, Ms. Gail Grover, uh, to uh, the Thrive Podcast. Gail, thank you for being a part of this podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. I am excited about this. Anytime I get a chance to talk about juvenile justice, um, despite my my being uncomfortable <laughs> with being in front of the camera, I want to be there. Well, we're grateful for your taking the time. Before we talk about juvenile justice, tell us a little bit about Gail Grove. Who is Gail Grove? Wow, wow. Um, we're still working that out in some ways. Um, but um, I was born in Washington, D.C. Let's just start there. Okay. And um, But I call several places home, and that probably is not the usual, but I spent a lot of my years in Pensacola, Florida, before returning to the Maryland area, Maryland, D.C. area, um, in which where I graduated. And then I spent 10 years in the United States Army and um, had an opportunity to live from Germany to Korea and all. What was involved in that choice to join the Army? Well, coming out, probably a lot like here, coming out of high school um, during that time, um, counselors didn't pay a lot of attention to um, kids of color. And although um, I was smart enough and and my grades were good enough, I just was not put on that track to go to college and didn't have um, the awareness, really, that that was was the – that. I guess would have been the best course mm-hmm. at the time, um, but still knowing that I had very sharp leadership skills. I have always probably been a soldier at heart, um, and, and actually served in office at my school. Uh, you know, okay. so it's just it's peculiar how that worked out. Um, but I ended up going um, into the military. At, and you had the opportunity to travel and visit other places, yes. the other cultures and things of that sort. Yes. How did that impact you? You know, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. What it taught me probably at its most basic is that people are people. You know, whether I spent time about a year and a half in Korea and I lived um, and traveled a lot amongst the people there. And so got a chance to interact, actually did some modeling in Korea and, really? and, and connected with an organization that worked with an orphanage. And so all the funds and proceeds went to the orphanage. And so had a chance to work with a lot um, of the Korean people and understanding and seeing their culture. It wasn't much unlike, especially some of the poor areas. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that much different from um, the projects that I grew up in in Pensacola. Okay. Um, and even being in, in Germany, um, I had a chance to travel um, to um, to Czech, you know, um, and to some of the other surrounding countries. And I lived on the economy and, again, got to interact with people. Mm-hmm. And what I saw was people are people um, and that they desire the safety, you know, family. And they had some of the same desires, which put gave me a whole new perspective you know, of where I came from Mm -hmm. and how I can make an impact. Um, But I think the most important thing that I got out of the military was a true understanding of authority and power. Okay. Um, When I first went into the military, um, I worked in nuclear weapons. That was my job, nuclear weapons uh, maintenance specialist, which um, during my whole 10 years there, I think it was three um, African-American women um, that I interact with new in the field. Okay. Initially, I, they actually tried to put me out, said that I was too feminine and that because I've always had a voice. I always was an advocate. <laughs> uh-huh. And when something wasn't right, I would speak up. Okay. Well, I was rocking the boat. You know, I was really rocking the boat. And so the best way to do to dismiss that is to move me out. Right. And um, 
and I learned how to be of value. So I, I, at, at some point it clicked, and I began to earn all the accolades from the post commander, from the company commander. I would be dressed right dress. I would roll my shirts and socks to six <laughs> inches, spit shine shoes, bed to the tee. And I earned all the goodies, mm -hmm. which made me um, valuable to the command which backed off the pressure and I began to understand authority and power and that if I wanted to really make a change then I had to I had to do it in a way that was legitimate and in a way that was right and that meant I had to be promoted and get into those positions to make those decisions. So you saw the value in working within a system in order to change Absolutely. The system. Absolutely. Well said. That is exactly what I learned okay. um, through that process. Okay. I imagine that that has uh, stood you in good stead for the remainder of your life and career. Yes. How did you get from the military to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, <laughs> and a lawyer, and now an yeah. advocate for juvenile justice? Um, I was in Germany, and um, my husband at the time had been um, sent to Kuwait for the war. I had just had my third child, and I, again, I worked in nuclear weapons, and so it wasn't that I was at risk of being sent because that wasn't the type of war that that was at the time, um, but I was led to that was my time to exit. Okay. And so, um, and I did. And me and three kids in tow returned back to the United States. And ultimately, we ended up as a family exiting the military after um, my ex-husband retired um, in Fort Polk. Okay. <laughs> right outside of Alexandria. Exactly. Yeah. And so I actually, um, when we were stationed there, um, I, with the three kids, I would place them in daycare and in kindergarten and get on the road and go to NSU for my undergraduate degree, okay. which was an hour, 70, like 71 miles. I would travel right. and until we completed that degree. Okay. And um, my initial intentions, intentions were to go to William and Mary back up in Virginia near my home. Um, but as God would have it, um, I was offered um, a tuition waiver to attend LSU Law School. Okay. And so I moved, you know, family in tow, Edward Gay Apartments. The apartment was, for five people, was probably as big as your, your office right here. Okay. And so that's where we spent three and a half years. Um, and I think the first year is when I joined Shiloh okay. um, in law school. I used to ride my bike. We, we had one vehicle, and it wasn't always working. And the law school was right across, across campus. So I would get on my bike with my books, and um, I would ride to campus. And, <laughs> and I always told the Lord that I would put my kids first. Yes. And my house became the house for the, kid, the neighborhood kids, you know, on Roosevelt Street through the bottoms. I had all the kids there. And yes, um, it was it was a good time. It was a difficult time. Sure. Um, but God gave us. He really did get us through that. And so and he's been blessing me ever since. So. So what drew you to law? Uh, um, was it your military background? Was it something else? What, what, what drew you to law? Well, I'd always, again, been an advocate. I can remember from a little girl most of the time getting in trouble because I was speaking up on some on behalf of someone else. Mm -hmm. Someone else was in trouble and I had to put my two cents in and. The, the famous line, I'm not talking to you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> would always pop up. So I think I've always been an advocate. And it has always been, I want to be a lawyer or a teacher. Okay. And, um, but I think also in the military is probably what triggered the lawyer piece because I had a chance to, to represent in court. And it was a natural fit, gathering information and putting on evidence and believing in a cause and speaking up for it with conviction, it fit. And I knew then that's what I needed to do. Okay. And so um, and that pathway was carved out. And that has been pretty much your career uh, since then. It has been. But it's funny, um, I've not always practiced law. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I, when I finished law school and um, went to clerk in the 20, 23rd JDC for um, Judge Raft Tarot, um, 
Then I went to the DA's office and practiced as a prosecutor for 10 years. Um, East Baton Rouge Parish? East Baton Rouge Parish. Okay. And a lot of people who, who um, know me used to ask, okay, why do you want to be a prosecutor of, you know, of the kids? Because, again, I understood authority and power, that that prosecutorial discretion on how to file a petition, where should leniency be, mm-hmm. where compassion should flow, mm-hmm. um, started with that office having right. the authority, legitimate authority, and the power to make the decisions to impact our kids started there. The right. court was later. It started with you. And I saw too many police reports um, that turned into petitions without having any other options. Mm-hmm. And then that began my desire to create alternatives. So my father, uh, former pastor of this church, uh, Reverend Charles T. Smith, his uh, uh, career started as a counselor mm-hmm. uh, up at State Industrial, uh, which became LTI, which became yes. Jetson Correctional yes. Center for Youth. And uh, he would sometimes tell us stories about uh, his experiences up there. Mm-hmm. How do you make a determination as a part of a legal system, a, a judicial system, which kid gets to go to State Industrial, LTI, Jetson Correctional, as opposed to being treated as an adult Mm -hmm. offender. And uh, the district attorney's office has an inordinate amount of power exactly. uh, in, exactly. in determining how a person is charged yes. and, and, and how that charge uh, uh, takes off and plays a role in the rest of that person's life. Right. Uh, not diminishing the fact that that this person might have been engaged in improper behavior, mm-hmm. uh, uh, recognizing that something needs to be done. But how do you make that, that decision? Right. This kid can go here versus mm-hmm. this kid needs to go there. So, a lot of it has to do with the youth it's himself, him or herself, um, on the nature of the behavior, you know, whether or not it is a true danger to this, to society and, and, and community safety, um, and making those decisions. And what's really important is alternatives. Right. Because we do want to hold people accountable. I always think accountability is followed real closely with grace and mercy. Mm -hmm. But we have to start with accountability because that's where change occurs. Right. And then we do grace and mercy on how we fashion that change. How mm-hmm. do we get help help people to get to the change that we need them to have as a society? And so if you have no options, then that definitely impacts decision making. And so um, and for me when in, as a prosecutor, I had to create options. I refuse to say there are not options, so let's just file a petition and see how it rolls. Mm-hmm. Um, team court, you know, truancy matter. You know, let's find other avenues to address what's really at the root cause of the behavior for this particular person. Mm-hmm. And it is case by case. Mm-hmm. And so you're looking at the individual case by case to determine whether or not um, the offense that they have committed, according to the police report, needs to go on what track. Many times, our kids do not need to go into the track of going deeper and deeper into the juvenile justice system. Um, But that is also a community effort. We Mm -hmm. need community partners who are building um, alternative programming in our our areas who are willing to take our kids who might not be making the best decisions. So to me, all of that really goes into how do I help this young person make better decisions? Um, But again, you have to stick with how much of a safety risk is this person to the community? What's the nature of right. the charge? And right. that, that plays into that role as well. Um, and we have seen situations uh, in the recent past where uh, some people have been given what others thought was too much leniency, mm-hmm. too much compassion, mm-hmm. and it has come back uh, to haunt them uh, with subsequent offenses mm-hmm. that took place where the cry is if they had been 
in jail, jail, incarcerated the first time, then they wouldn't have had the opportunity to do this Absolutely. the second time. And, and and to me, that's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking mm-hmm. uh, that takes place. And yet it is a reality that you all have to deal with. Right. And, and that level of responsibility has to be filled with a certain degree of anxiety uh, uh, as, as you all make yeah. these decisions. Well, and I used to, people just ask me that, you know, that you, you must, you know, must be tough because all of these bad, it really wasn't. I, I truly am, I was wired to be and equipped to be used in that way. Um, and I guess much like my study in school, I worked hard. Mm-hmm. I, I got the information and I digested it and prayed on it and then would make the decision that all of that led me to. Mm-hmm. And, and I could find comfort in that, understanding that nothing's a guarantee when you're talking about people, but you have the duty to dive deep and to make the best decision based on the evidence and the facts that are before you. So if you've got a person before you and there's a a long string of problems and you have no alternatives to really deal with those problems, then the likelihood of that same decision being made again Mm -hmm. is increased. But if Mm -hmm. you can do some intervention, true intervention, to try to, you know, um, address the root causes, then you're getting better and better of being able to really change that behavior. Mm-hmm. But it does, it's, it, it's a process, and you can't cut corners on it because our community safety depends on it, but so does that individual, so right. does that youth. Right. And so you have to be really in it. Um, in order to make the best decision for both parts, you know. And when you're with the DA's office, you're representing the people, yes. you know, and you can't forget that piece of it. But that doesn't mean that at the total expense of throwing people away, you know, and especially our young people, because in the juvenile justice system at 21, the doors are open. That person will be integrated back into our community. And the record is expunged or, or no, not, that, not expunged, uh, concealed, there's closed? A, there's a confidentiality that is definitely connected to juvenile justice. But like anything that is supposed to be confidential, mm-hmm. um, a lot of times it, it still comes back to haunt our and, and be a barrier to our young people, which, again, goes to whenever we unnecessarily or inappropriately bring our kids kids into the juvenile justice system, we have a long-term impact on the outcome of their lives. We have a higher um, degree of impact on the outcomes of what they can do later um, in in their lives. and then there's a continuum. I mean, we put some things in place um, to try to ensure that our kids weren't un, were not unnecessarily or inappropriately placed in detention, mm-hmm. you know, even at the point of arrest. Because, mm-hmm. you know, research tells us once you, you, you arrest a kid and they are in detention, the probability of them returning has just increased. So you want to be a good gatekeeper. Um, and, and through our juvenile justice reform, we've been able to put some objective tools in place to make better decisions by doing assessments, by mm-hmm. screening our young people before we are just putting them in our detention facilities. But after all of the objective assessments have been done, mm-hmm. it still comes down to a subjective decision yes. made by one or two key individuals. Yes. And you have been one of those one or two key individuals who have had to make those kinds of decisions. How does your faith Mm -hmm. play a part in your decision-making process? Um, Every part of my decision-making process is based on my faith. And I say that because um, at the end of the day, I choose to please God. And he has clearly set out a path to making good decisions. And that path is what what we should use. Um, I think, you know, beyond being, you know, saved and justified, beyond being changed and sanctified, God also puts us in a place that he uses us. And when he does that, he gives us the strength and he gives us the ability to make the decision so that we can represent him well. So in everything that I do mm-hmm. as a part of my work, I'm looking at that this, this person is also a creation of God. 
and he's no respect of person. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to find the goodness. What can we work with that this person have mm-hmm. in order to continue to build on who they are mm-hmm. and not throw, not throw our kids away, not throw their families away. We really have to find a way of honing in on what's good and seeing I've seen that in too many kids who really don't realize how much good they have in them. And when you tap into that, then you can begin to see transformation. Now, it doesn't come easily and it doesn't come over time. Um, And it needs the system to work with Mm -hmm. that transformation. Mm -hmm. And I've spent a lot of time and a lot of energy on trying to help build up our systems that are wrapped around our youth. Um, That system has to include... Uh, systems that affect families Absolutely. as well as the individual. Absolutely. Uh, I would imagine you're the expert uh, that poverty plays a large role in, in why these children are in the situations that they are in. So if the, 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 the sociologist would say if you really want to have a positive impact on these children's lives, mm-hmm. then you have to do something to stem the, uh, the the increasing, widening tide of poverty Absolutely. in which these children live. Absolutely. So what systemically can our community do to help uh, deal with the poverty issue? We ha- we really do have to be intentional and and willing to stay in it for the long term. Sometimes we, we move in trends. And to address the poverty that is actually impacting our youth really requires us to be intentional about each and every family in those particular areas. And that is a, that is a community society issue. I'm very, very aware that juvenile justice can't solve the bigger problem. We have a responsibility to an area in Mm -hmm. that, but we need all of our systems working collectively, whether it's the education, whether it's um, unemployment and employment systems, um, whether it's health, all of that plays into poverty. If if there are health issues and people are spending their last dime on that, then there is no room for the other areas. Mm-hmm. And so it's a it's a collective effort. Now, when you say health issues, are you talking physical health or mental health? Mental health. Because th- there are strong mental health issues yes, involved yes, in this. Yes, yes. We find that a lot of the youth um, that even come through the system um, display issues with mental health or behavioral health um, that has to be addressed in order to, to get to improving their life outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, but also plays a, a part in the poverty issue as well. And so, because they're all intertwined. It's really, it's really hard to carve out one area and say you're going to fix it and then think everything else will take care of itself. It's uh, multiple points of work, which is why I said it has to be intentional, right. collaborative, and be willing to stay in it for the long term. Let me give you an example. Um, when I came out of law school in 99, I believe that's the report that it's around that same time when the report came out um, on how our kids were being mistreated in what you call the LTIs in our juvenile correction facilities. And um, shortly after that, um, that's when the lawsuit was filed by um, Department of Justice, a local law firm, Nordyke, um, and some advocates in order to change how we were treating our young people um, in these facilities. a couple of years after that, the legislature established um, Act 1225, and I think that's 2003, in order to set up some very specific steps to get at the injustices that have been alleged in the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Um, rolling from all of that, you know, um, we had MacArthur Foundation come into our community. We had Annie E. Casey Foundation come into our community. We had real movement towards correcting juvenile justice in our in our state and mm-hmm. locally. Mm-hmm. Um, that started some 16 years ago. And we're still on that pathway. We're still not there yet. I mean, I uh, recently I have been working on bail bonds 
you know, some of our kids that are being left in detention because of the bail bond process when it really wasn't a danger to society. They simply can't make bail. Yes. Yes. And so that's that's an issue. That's a system. It's a major issue. issue. Right. Yes. So but we have to and you can't you can't eat this elephant all at one time. So we worked on this we need data. Mm-hmm. We need to start making data-driven decisions or at least have the data as a part of the decision-making process. So we, that's solid. Then we needed alternatives. Then we needed our detention itself to be changed. Um, under my watch, we, we started IEPs and attendance for our, cl- our kids in detention to connect that back to the school system. They were counted Tell as Tell people what an IEP is. An IEP is an individual <laughs> evaluation plan for, for our kids. Okay. You know, for those who might have um, um, needs for mental health or um, additional educational needs. Okay. Um, and so when they came into detention, they were not being, you know, taught according to what their plan said. Mm -hmm. So we began a process of connecting what was happening in detention back to the school system and preparing to return them back to the schools. We had teachers who were not certified. They were not teaching all the core classes. There was just a lot of things that we needed to do better. We started and we did better and we put those things in place. That's system change. Right. Um, Even with the, the risk assessment instrument, when police make um, arrest with our young mm-hmm. people now. There is an objective tool that goes down the list. What kind of arrest um, has he have previous? Does he have any bonds out? Is he testing positive for um, for marijuana? Is there's a whole list of things before we would make the determination whether or not that child needs to be placed in detention or whether he can be released back to his family pending his court date. So all of these are part of system change that equates. And law enforcement is being trained in how to make these yes. assessments, yes, particularly with regard to young people? To young people. And that's, that tool is with our juvenile justice system. It's not a, a process Because a lot of this came adult. up when, when we were having the controversy surrounding the Bridge Center. Right. And and where we were going to go with funding mm-hmm. for the Bridge Center and and who was going to be making those kinds of decisions. And one of the things that was pointed out is that law enforcement uh, had to be certified mm-hmm. in order, and in certification I hope is not the incorrect word, they had, they had to be educated in how to make these decisions right. uh, um, so that people don't just end up in jail right. when they really need mental uh, health access, right. and they're not getting that kind of access. Is there a a a, a different, uh, uh, more concise uh, department within juvenile justice that looks at children differently from adult offenders? Yes. Are they funded equally? Uh, because uh, Mike Mitchell has come out, uh, the, the the parish public defender, mm-hmm. has come out uh, recently saying that the uh, public uh, defender's office uh, is having to turn away cases mm-hmm. uh, because they are not being properly funded mm-hmm. in order to provide adequate defense for offenders. Is that... Is that also true within juvenile justice? Are, are these people being presented before judges and before the, 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 the juvenile justice system without adequate uh, uh, legal support because there's a, there's a paucity of funding with regard to that? Well, I, I can't tell you. I know the dollars for the funding of the public defender that is actually allocated to the juvenile justice system. But what I can tell you is that... Um, um, there, there is, and it always has been, as far as I, I can tell, um, a shortage of funding to do the job that they would like to do. Now, those guys that are out there, they do a, a great job representing Nobody's our kids. Nobody's questioning whether or not they do a good um, job. Could but they use I was struck funding? by the fact that prosecutors get way more funding than defenders get. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I, I'm a child of television. You have the right to remain silent. Yes. Uh, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law, you have the right to speak with an attorney. If you can't afford one, we will provide one at no cost. Mm-hmm. And what Mike Mitchell is saying is, no, we can't provide you with one because 
we don't have the funding to do the work. And, and mm-hmm. I, I guess what I'm asking you is, if that's the case with Mr. Mitchell and the Public Defender's Office for Adults, is that also the case with regard to children? Mm-hmm. And, and, and how does the system address that okay. economic uh, imbalance? As it speaks to representation, the kids who come out to juvenile court, all of them are represented. So we do not bring our young people before a court of law without having reputa- um, representation. So our juvenile system in that, and I can't say that for every juvenile system across our state. I've, I've seen differently, yes. especially when I was clerking and had a chance to ride the circuit and see different jurisdictions in action. But for ours here in East Baton Rouge Parish, kids who come into our court system are represented by attorneys. And if the um, the public defender is not able to provide that reputation because maybe it's a conflict, maybe there's a group of kids and there needs to be you know different representation then we do have um, attorneys that come out to actually volunteer to take cases. And so the judges will appoint attorneys who are available. So our kids are represented. um, And I think that they receive um, good representation for the attorneys that come out there on their behalf. It is a system that works together because we really are looking out for the best interests of that child. And even I, as a prosecutor, when I was in in that role, um, in making sure defense counsel, especially those who came out to volunteer and didn't understand that the juvenile system was different, used different verbiage, different terms, and didn't really understand the children's code and helping and assisting them to understand the children's code, because it does me no good to win a case and lose a child. Right. Right. And so. Good point. And so I wanted to make sure that their representation is good. Mm-hmm. And so we, we work for the betterment of our kids. Mm-hmm. And, and that's all of us. If we're not doing that, then we don't need to be out there because in, in, the, in the end, we're not doing them any good, nor are we doing our community any good. Does Baton Rouge, does East Baton Rouge Parish uh, have enough viable options for young people uh, who are in danger mm-hmm. uh, because of poverty, because of uh, problems within their family mm-hmm. units. Are we doing enough? Uh, and, and that's not an accusatory question. Right. It's just a, a, a question trying to, to seek understanding. Are we doing enough as a community to provide options for young people uh, that will help break the cycle that they currently seem to be in? I think we're doing better. I think over this period of time where juvenile justice really reformed, really took off, it took a long time to build relationships, you know, which is the foundation of just about everything we do, beginning with our relationship with God, um, and then trying to extend that relationship and finding what is common with others to get the job done. And so we we build those relationships, which led to programs, which led to collaboration. What is it that we need? Where's the gap? Where's the data to make the best decisions to fill the gaps? Mm-hmm. We've done a lot of work to bring community partners together. And I'm so glad when I see new programs come up, like FOAM, you know, Fathers on a Mission, that didn't go through this whole process of having to have 12 and 13 people around the table and strategizing right. someone, an individual who felt the passion, you know, and talked to enough people to say, how do I do this? And then got out there and did it. And he's making a difference with that program. So those, all of those programs help. Um, and so we're doing better with filling the gap. I think the responsibility of the leadership is to make sure that everybody feel included and valuable for what they do contribute Mm -hmm. Um, because our kids needs are so diverse that um, every program out there you know with people who um, and I I have to say this because not every adult is 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 
is out there to help a child, right? So you have to do due diligence to make sure we've we've got the right people in place that are teaching the right things to right. our children. But we have we are growing as a community of having enough programs. We still need more. Transportation is an issue mm-hmm. in our community. Kids getting to those different programs. Um, I really think our faith-based community could do more with helping that. I have that to was the next question there. I was going to ask. What is the church not doing that you would like to see the church do? Well, I can. I, I'll speak to something very specific that I'm, I'm passionate about, and I, I'm, I, my fear is that it might be going away. Is that um, as a part of reform and as an alternative to placing kids in our detention facility, um, I, I, drove, I wrote up a. Uh, a proposal for an evening reporting center, and um, and I did it with a, a fellow actually that was assigned to me from the mayor's office way back. And um, excellent proposal, evidence based, done around the nation. Spent some time with NE Casey Foundation building it to make sure it was sound. Um, and then I searched with some faith based and some organizations to see if we can set it. We could work with because I, as a department, we would help fund it. So mm-hmm. funding wasn't really truly the issue, mm-hmm. um, and so I just we couldn't get any bites from faith-based um, or other organizations. And I get it too in the sense that these are our kids who have stigmas. You know, maybe not the best decision making, and not everybody was equipped to take the kids who are hardest to handle and need the most compassion and mm-hmm. patient with. Um, and so what we ended up doing is saying, well, we'll do it over at Juvenile um, Services. So we used a structure and we converted it into an evening reporting center. And we bought a van to pick them up at school at the dismissal of school, bring them to the Ethan Reporting Center, um, had used Title I money because you're authorized to do that. You have to find the money right. um, to do tutoring, hire a recreational therapist to organize the curriculum so that it was fun, but it was valuable and purposeful. We fed them dinner. We did pro-social activities, whether it was take them to quarters, take them to the YMCA to play ball, and then we took them home. Um, and, you know, 8 or 9 o'clock at night, only to start the day. Those kids, but for that program, would have went into our jail to wait for their cases to be processed. And the idea is, is once they breach those doors, the likelihood of them returning increases, and they're learning the wrong things from the other kids that are mm-hmm. sitting in there. Mm-hmm. So we, the idea was to keep them out. Mm-hmm. I think that those evening reporting centers should be all around our community where kids are living. They can come from school and they can go to evening reporting centers and do things that are productive, get help with their school, you know, get a meal, all of those things that they need because we have to supervise and we have to nurture. If we want our kids to make the best decisions, we have to supervise them and we have to nurture them. And that's what that did until we can work them through and out of the process. And the more of those that we could have around our community, and they could be called anything, they could look differently, but the the gist of it is, but for this, you would be locked up. Right. Um, I think faith-based organizations are equipped to do that. You know, some, 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 some are equipped to do that. And I think it would be beneficial. Um, I I remember, but there is now, and I have to be very transparent. This is not as easy as it it seems sometimes. Um, We created a program for community services, and I thought, okay, some of our kids have a problem with our, our, our men and women in uniform, but that's in police uniform. So we partnered with the fire department. Let's do community service at the fire department. And we had a couple of fire departments who took us on, and our kids would report there, interact with the firemen, mm-hmm. wash trucks mm-hmm. in their community so they were connected back to the community. Mm-hmm. The staff there got to know them and would take on kind of a soft mentoring um, posture. And it worked well for a while until one of our kids actually stole the credit card from one of the firemen. And then, you know, it was everything like fell apart. everything <laughs> fell apart. So it's not always easy mm-hmm. because our, these are our kids who you know, are not making good decisions all the time. And you right. have to supervise and you have to continue to talk and do and interact. So it's hard work. But um, when the light goes off with them, when, they, when, they, when the curve turns, it's a beautiful thing to see. And that's what we need. We need to be with them and walk with them through this process of maturing. 
um, and not everybody's cut to do that, but I think more of our organizations, more of our faith-based, I think that they'll posture to do that. I think we've got people in our congregation who would be willing to work through it and they can partner. It wouldn't have to be one person doing it all. Mm-hmm. You know, they have ministries that can work together, that can partner, that will lighten the burden on one particular person or one particular group. Mm-hmm. But that takes collaboration. That takes a will to make that happen. And again, sustainability. You, you know, we just cannot start something and then when it gets tough, drop it. One of the 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 problems with it, and, and that's why when you said faith-based communities uh, are equipped to do this, and I, I responded by saying some, some, many of these programs are contingent upon uh, financial reimbursement. Mm-hmm. Uh, dollars have to be spent, reports have to be filed, yeah. and then you have to wait for the dollars to come back. Yes. There are churches. Uh, you, you're being very polite, faith-based organization. There are churches <laughs> that have the ability to do that. Yes. Uh, uh, that that have the the, the financial stability uh, that will mm-hmm. allow them to submit reports and wait for the money to come back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Truth of the matter is, there most of our churches are week to week. People have no idea, especially yeah. as as uh, church attendance continues to uh, flag mm. uh, from one year to the next. People, uh, I, I, I spend a lot of time on social media, people's opinions about what churches can and cannot do uh, is becoming more and more detached from reality. Okay. Uh, uh, because they look at mega churches on television and they think that every church is like that. Mm-hmm. By and large, churches don't have the financial resources to expend on a program and then wait 30 days, 60 days, Mm -hmm. 90 days for a reimbursement uh, to come back. So that even if they are well intended Mm -hmm. uh, to do uh, such a thing for young people, uh, and and I can't imagine a church not wanting to do something for young people, they simply don't have the ability to, to put out that kind of resource. Uh, If there was a way that we could bridge Mm -hmm. that financial gap, I think that you might be able to get more churches willing to participate. That being said, churches like this one and others in the Mm -hmm. community can mm-hmm. uh, can can withstand that, and so I'm interested in learning more about this program and seeing if there's a way that Shiloh can play a role in that. So when we get through with this, you need to share with me some more information <laughs> about that. You came here with a specific. Uh, message that you wanted to share with regard to juvenile advocacy Mm -hmm. and I've talked about everything but what you wanted (laughs) to talk about so tell us what what you really wanted to convey well this is this has really been it Um, my desire is really to raise the awareness of juvenile justice in the reform that has occurred the path in which it's going and where others can jump in and do a part in keeping us going. It really, there's no other, no no bigger agenda than let's keep the juvenile justice reform that we have been working on for the last 15, 16, 17 years. Um, let's keep it going in a direction that benefits kids. And I know that it does. When I began in this system the first year, at the end of the year, in our detention facilities, we had over 1,100 kids. I want to say 1,152 or something that had come through our detention facility. Mm-hmm. At the end of 2018, when I actually retired out of the local juvenile justice system, um, in the fall of that year, we were down to maybe 750. There were a 37% decrease of kids coming into our detention facility. Um, With that said, I know that we're going in the right direction, and the numbers are not so overwhelming that even a small number of churches who are willing to to work with some of our kids won't make um, a big difference. Mm -hmm. We are a 52-bed facility. When I came in, we were 52 full and calling judges to say, who can we release? Um, At the end of 2018, we were running in the low 20s. That's progress. That's yes. less kids going to jail. Can churches help those 20, 
that are in detention or a portion, because some might have to be because of the nature of their crime and their background. Safety dictates for them and the community that they have to be there. Right. But there are a number that's within those t- small 20 or 30 kids that can be helped in their community. So can our local churches help 10 kids here, five kids there? I think I think it's doable when yes. we don't think of how big it could be. When we look at, really look at the data, we know that it's doable, and that's what I want. I, I want to draw attention to what's happening in our juvenile justice system. There are good things happening, but we still need our community to jump in because poverty is still real. Education is still lacking. Our health issues, behavior, mental and physical health is still real. And so we can never just say we are there because it's just a matter of a day or two and that same youth that we've been working with is right back in the system again. Right. And so we just have to rally together, and, and, and that's what I'm here for, to just bring awareness to juvenile justice. You are the president of our sisterhood ministry. Yes. You work uh, in uh, a number of facets within the yes. Chicago Missionary Baptist Church family. One of the things that the sisterhood and brotherhood ministries uh collaborate on is a monthly feeding of the homeless anywhere from 150 to 250 meals uh, are served every time you guys go out and I think it's a wonderful work that Mm -hmm. uh, you all are doing Uh, how many of those people that you're feeding are juveniles yes when we originally started we didn't see a whole lot of kids but I can tell you even last week when we went out during the storm we were over at our one-stop center and there were kids with parents in the rain coming to get meals and to get hygiene items um, there's too many you know and I'm talking little kids mm-hmm. we've even had you know teenagers that have come over and we've had some of our teenagers from Shiloh come over and we would organize that they would interact and play games and 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 do things with the young people there there is a real issue of homelessness not just for our adult population but also for our young people um, and so the percentage probably that's over there, maybe 20%, which is still too much for kids. Um, One of the things that I really had thought about and haven't had a chance to play it all out is that um, our law recently changed to raise the age so now that 17-year-olds are in the juvenile justice system instead of going to the adult system. Um, 17, 18, 19-year-olds are in a peculiar situation because sometimes parents are telling them they need to get out. Right, you, you reach 18, you yeah. might have caught you. You know, it's time for you to go. Yeah, um, they become homeless, but still they're under the supervision and have some accountability to our juvenile system. So, of thinking how to work with our homeless organizations to partner with juvenile justice for those older kids that maybe they can begin to get temporary housing or housing so that they can still, you know. Um, make this transition to adulthood without violating parole or um, probation Mm -hmm. and still have some kind of support underneath them. So I know that they get HUD dollars, you know, and that's, we have some um, like Youth Oasis, some um, organizations in our community who receive some funding, but kind of intentionally partnering with them to be ready to um, help our older kids who are now coming into the juvenile justice system. And that one stop is a place, could be a nexus of where that kind of collaboration could take place. Speaking as someone who spent 10 years in the military. Yes. Do you think that military service is a viable option for uh, some of these children who are in this in-between place? Uh, and, And I don't know what the rules are with regard to the ability to enlist mm-hmm. if you have uh, a criminal uh, uh, matter mm-hmm. that is still up for discussion. But but there was a time 
when uh, <laughs> the stereotype was if you if you don't want to go to school and you're not willing to work, we're gonna send to, you a butt to, to the, the military. military. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, we do have a a, a really uh, I think a good youth challenge program in our state, mm-hmm. which is you know not military, but it's fashion you know and it's run by the guards. I believe it's the guards they, in, in in the military. Um, that is really a good alternative for some of our young people who do well. Um, some don't. But this is the key to, to our like youth challenge. They have to have someone who's willing to be with them as a mentor mm-hmm. for one year after they come back. Because you could do all of that away right. and with the military, but come right back to our community in the same circumstances without someone who's willing to be your sounding board, willing to you know help you through the process. So they require that you have a mentor that's committed to you. So I think with some of the cases, though it may not be military, you know, just because of age and in school, mm-hmm. we do have our youth challenge program. That might be um, that has proven to be a good fit for some because they go and get credentials, they complete their schooling. Um, you know, it, it really is a good springboard mm-hmm. for for some of our young people. And they do, you know, we have representatives from the Youth Challenge Program that come to local um, juvenile justice agencies in order to, you know, um, seek referrals and, and and let them know that they're available to help our young people. And then that sometimes springboards into actually military service. I think the military is an excellent option. I'm always kind of careful with saying that because leadership matters. Right. And so, um, but there is a lot to be learned um, through the military, through discipline, through exposure, um, and, and through the ability of working with other people of different cultures and different backgrounds. Last question. You clearly have made the decision to live in Baton Rouge, and, and and I finish with every guest somewhere around this question. Uh, you you were born in D.C., raised in Florida and Maryland, went to the military, spent time overseas, visited different cultures, uh, came back, and you planted your flag in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Louisiana is a positive place for our children and the next generation? I think the things that we are doing in Louisiana makes us every day um, a good place to raise families. Um, I can't say that that has always been my thoughts. Um, Even as much as I've been blessed here, I at some points wish my kids had more exposure. But this is what I know. Even in that environment, I have a son that's a paramedic Um, a daughter who went to Howard University, then on to London to get her master's and living in New York and holding her own. And I have another one who is a financial counselor. He, He is committed to helping people. I know God blessed me to give me the tools to help raise them along with my church family, but the community impacted them as well. Mm -hmm. And they are they are representing, in my opinion, um, God in a way that I believe he's pleased. And he's no respect of persons. We can do that for every child, for every young person in our community. But it's going to take, it will take all of us and take good policy making. And I see a lot of people who are trying very hard to change policies, to change systems, to break down foundations that are racist and, and that does not give a fair playing field, that equity has not existed, whether intentional or unintentional, but I see people black and white who are trying to make that change. I think God can take our efforts, take our little bit, take our good desires, and make much out of that. And so Louisiana <laughs> Louisiana is in no worse position than anyone else. We can, we can do this, and I think we owe it to the next generation to get to work. Gail Grover, thank you so much for taking the time to share with us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for viewing. We'll be back next time. Thank you, Gail. (laughs) Oh,